All right. Good afternoon, everybody. You're listening to Method to the Madness on KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM, University of California and listener-supported radio. Streaming on the World Wide Web at KALX.Berkeley.edu. However you are listening to us this morning, thanks for joining. My name is Ali Nazar, and this is Method to the Madness, a public affairs show that celebrates the innovative spirit of the Bay Area. And today I am fortunate enough to be joined in studio by Dr. Miriam Zuck. Hi, doctor. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm great. Thanks for coming in. And um, today we're going to be talking about um, a new project that had just been published, uh, of which um, Dr. Zuck is the project director called the Urban Displacement Project. And before we get to that, though, and we're going to talk a little bit about gentrification and some of the macro trends happening in the Bay Area right now. But first, I wanted to uh, start off by, we usually in this uh, program talk about innovative ideas and mm-hmm. projects that are bringing light, bringing to light, you know, um, issues that aren't necessarily fully understood. Mm-hmm. So um, I think what you're doing is a perfect example of that. Um, but we first kind of talk about what's the problem set? Like what led you to uh, want to solve this problem? Like what are you trying to solve? This particular problem. Well, um, I actually came to this issue sort of in a roundabout way. I um, became – I used to work in air quality um, policy. I lived in Mexico City for a number of years and was starting to get interested in issues of transportation since that's one of the biggest – emitters of air pollution in in Mexico City and in a lot of urban areas. So I became interested in issues of land use and transportation and how people get around in cities and how do we make them healthier for people. Um, And when I did my doctoral degree here at UC Berkeley, it was really that intersection of health and place. So how do we make neighborhoods healthy for everyone? So not just healthy for um, the wealthy, but healthy for low-income households as well. Um, so I was doing we- research in Fresno um, and looking at, at neighborhood revitalization and a lot of the efforts there, um, a lot of it going on around high-speed rail and transit and access and how do we revitalize neighborhoods. And as I was there, um, people were excited about revitalization but really anxious. They, they thought, who are you revitalizing our neighborhoods for? And is this going to lead to displacement? So that actually is what got me interested in the issue. And um, this project is kind of trying to answer those questions um, of when we do invest in neighborhoods, when especially when we invest in transit and access in neighborhoods, um, is that leading to displacement? And how do we help people stay in neighborhoods as they improve? Okay, so that's, a I think, a really great... Um summary, I think, of how you got to it. Now, I want to ask about, uh, before we dive into the project itself, and I want to hear kind of a little bit of the history of how you went about achieving this really cool map, which everybody can check out at urbandisplacement.org. Um, I want to ask, is this, a, is this a unique problem? Like, usually we can see problems and look back to history, some kind of precedent, but it seems the macro trend of this flight kind of back to urban cores um, is the reverse of the previous trend of people going out to the suburbs and leaving the cities. So is this a new problem, this idea of gentrification? Is it a 21st century problem or has it always existed? I mean, there is the, the, the issues of, of people sort of 
homesteading, let's call it, um, and moving into sort of low-income neighborhoods and pushing out low-income households is not that new. I mean, in terms of the academic literature on it, um, it dates back to the 1960s in London when people started writing about it and really coining this term gentrification. Um, But, you know, we if you search back even further, you can find all sorts of evidence um, of brownstoning in in, um, New York area, um, all sorts of issues like that. So I think the issue of place and and whose neighborhood is it and, you know, what are the amenities there and who has the right to be there span history. Um, the the current issue of gentrification and people trying to go back into city, uh, higher income households moving back into cities um, is a little bit more recent. But I think if you think about it more generally about displacement and um, and right to right to the city it's um, it's not that new okay and um, looking from that was from a historical perspective that mm-hmm. question but thinking about like where we are in a moment in time I can't think of a more timely project with the rising rents in the Bay Area which has really priced so many people out of being able to live in the kind of core inner Bay Area. Um, and some of the statistics that we're seeing these days are staggering. I think I saw that the average rent price in San Francisco is getting around $3,000 a month, which is, you know, I think unthinkable for a lot of people. Yet there is this elite class of people who can afford that and it's not a big deal. So I think us really understanding what this trend, how it's happening and how to, how to um, handle it, I think, is super, super important. So let's talk about the map. So, well, well actually, before we go there, yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about, so you're housed in a place, as I understood, it's called the, community, the Center for Community Innovation, and that's a Cal um, organization or department? Center. It's a center. Yeah. So tell center, us a little bit about that. Sure. It's a center started by uh, Professor Karen Chapel in the Department of City and Regional Planning. Um, and generally, a lot of... Um, uh, professors and researchers here will create centers to sort of house their research and um, have sort of an identity to their research um, and students that work with them. So this center was started by Professor Chapel and really looking at housing, community, and economic development. It started with issues in the Bay Area, but we've gone regional and international. Um, she's done work throughout Latin America. She's done work in Dubai. Um, so we're, we've expanded greatly. But especially in the last 10 years, a lot of our focus has been around transit-oriented development just because that is sort of the dominant frame in city planning right now. Um, we want to get people out of their cars. We want them to use more transit. We want to be better for the environment. Um, and so this project really comes out of that, comes out of a statewide interest in this, right? So because of uh, AB 32 and the Global Warming Act, Global Warming Act, um, the state is trying to encourage regions to do a better job of linking housing and transportation and land use planning um, and really trying to, to encourage transit-oriented development. So we have a long history of doing research on this. Um, and, and as those programs have been coming out through what's called the Sustainable Community Strategies, um, communities are anxious. They're anxious that this is going to lead to displacement and um, adva- advancing gentrification, especially in places like the Bay Area and Los Angeles, hot market cities. 
but we do see it in in places that you might not expect as well. Where we do see these kind of pressures in communities throughout California. Okay, well, we're talking to Dr. Mariam Zook. She is the project director of the Urban Displacement Project out of the Center for Community Innovation here at Cal. Uh, and this is Methods of the Madness here on KALX Berkeley, 90.7 FM. And, you know, it was interesting. I was doing a little bit of research on your center, and, and I saw that it was um, reference AB32, mm-hmm. which I, I didn't draw that connection when I first saw the map. But I guess the, the, the um, targets that are put out by that uh, bill are are very very aggressive and there's so there's a whole interdisciplinary focus on satisfying those targets and I guess it does make a lot of sense to have um, a lot of urban planners involved because that's going to be the core of kind of figuring out the long term effect. Do you guys have when you're mm-hmm. looking at um, the types of trendings that you're looking at? Do we have in your mind the population growth that we're going to have to solve for in places like the Bay Area? Um, so the Bay Area is currently going through an update of its sustainable community strategies, which are mandated under SB 375, which is sort of one of the implementing mechanisms of AB 32. Um, and it's called Plan Bay Area. And and that's and what they do. They do a lot of forecasting with that. So they know the future population um, or they, they, they forecast rather the future population and the future number of households with that. Um, I don't have the exact numbers on hand because they are currently going through an update of it. Um, but they, they're they required to, once they project out those households and project out what the transportation is going to, um, the transportation infrastructure is going to be, they're trying to create plans that will meet the needs of those future households. So one of the goals, at least in the last Plan Bay Area, um, was to house the entire population, um, which is hard, um, the future population, right, without without having to displace people outside of the Bay Area region. Um, and which is technically the nine counties that touch exactly. the Bay, is that right? And that's yeah. a, approximately, what, six and a half million people now? Not yeah. sure. Yeah, my numbers, I I think it's something around there, five to six, something yeah. like that. Yeah, so I don't know what the current projections are out. out. Um, I think the Plan Bay Area might project out to 2030. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're currently working through those forecasts right now. But I do know that the macro trend in, in terms of the United States and the world in general is just way more people and not having too much more space in terms of leasing, like a densely populated urban core like the Bay Area. Yeah, and people want to live in cities. Yeah. Um, so so that's certainly one of the issues that, that Plan Barrier is, is trying to solve, right? We don't necessarily want our workers to have to move out to Tracy and Stockton um, and commute those really long commutes. That's actually shooting ourselves in the foot in terms of trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions if sure. we're if all of our low-wage workers are living outside of the region and having to commute in. Yeah. So the answer isn't to build bigger freeways. It's to build more densely populated urban cores that have access to public transit. Yeah. And is there anything being thought of besides BART in terms of public transit options in the Bay? I know I'm getting a little bit off of what you're doing, but do you know anything about that? Well, there are... I think 75 new stations or train stations and train uh, routes planned throughout the Bay Area. Um, so there's the EBART going out to Eastern Contra Costa County, if I remember correctly, the SMART, um, which goes up through um, North Bay. Um, there's extensions of BART, right? So right now we're seeing the extension down to San Jose going on. So there's a lot of 
upgrading our existing transit. But there's also trying to um, – I know you've probably heard about the bus rapid transit um, efforts going on in Oakland. Um, Berkeley, unfortunately, didn't want it. Um, and I'm sure there's other areas around the Bay Area that are trying to use buses similar to the way that we use trains to get people to places faster and at lower cost. Okay, great. So that we, we went, veered off a little bit there, but I'm yeah. just so interested in this topic. But let's get back to, okay, so you um, are at the Center for Community Innovation and you see this problem of um, gentrification and wanted to do some research on it. Mm-hmm. And we see the product, the end result, which is this incredible map, and I encourage everybody to go check it out at urbandisplacement.org. Uh, but tell me a little bit about how you came to even wanting to build something like that, or how did that idea come about? So I would actually say this is an intermediate product. We're actually, well, the product project is ending officially um, next year, um, at least the state-funded piece of it. Um, but the we were also funded by um, the regional planning agencies to do this work. And the idea behind it, especially from the regional agencies, was help us figure out where we can ex- both help us understand where we're experiencing these things right now, these these pressures, um, and where we expect to see them into the future, in part so that we can do a better job of enacting policies and investments um, in the right places. So that's where it came about. Um, we were fortunate to, to participate in the Regional Prosperity Plan, which was part um, – it was run by the regional agents, the planning agencies, um, and it was a project funded by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, um, the, the Federal Ho- Department of Housing and Urban Development. Um, so as part of that project um, – Right. There was this, they, they called it the regional early warning system for displacement. So what can we learn from what, where, the information we have now about where these processes are going to continue or advance in the future? Um, so it was both sort of a, a data exploration um, endeavor as well as um, we did nine community-based case studies as part of that project. So working with community-based organizations to better understand what are the pressures that they're experiencing? What are the policies that they think that they have seen work in the, on the ground? And then how do we compare the experience on the ground to what the data is saying? Um, so that's sort of where it came about. So there's a quantitative and a qualitative component. Exactly. And we're also working for the state le- um, piece of this project. We're working with UCLA. So there is a LA component to the research um, where the idea is what can we – provide for um, regional plan- planning agencies around the state uh, to help them better understand these issues. So we're continuing to work with them um, and figure out sort of how can we generalize this information to other communities around the state. So in the quantitative side really kind of has this visual component of this map. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and playing around with the map, you have a lot of different data sets in there. So how did you go about deciding which data sets to visualize that really would like? I, I'm a very big. Um, I have a, a huge interest in data visualization. I think it's one of the new. I think I've, I view it as an art form. You know, mm-hmm. trying to figure out ways to unlock the secrets of this data. There's lots of different ways to look at it. So you have looked at lots of different data sets. How did you decide which data sets to visualize in your map? Sure. So first, we started with 
I mean, we had a long list of all the data we wanted to look at. Um, some of that got thrown out because we couldn't get data that covered the entire region. The goal was to cover the entire region and to be able to go back at least 10, 20 years so that, because we know that these are long processes. Um, so some of the things that we wanted, we had to throw out. Um, like we thought we could get information on um, housing discrimination complaints. Um, and we could get it at the city level, but we wanted it at a smaller grain, right? We want to understand what's happening at the neighborhood level. So, and we couldn't go back very far for that. So, so that was one narrowing step. Um, I think we started off with like a hundred variables that we wanted to look at. Um, so we narrowed it down based on that. Then we collected all sorts of data, a lot from the census, which has its limitations, right? The, our data ends at 2013 and, and, you don't have to be a rocket scientist in the Bay Area to know that things have really skyrocketed since 2013. So we know that what our estimates are conservative right now because we don't have more recent data, at least on demographic data. And isn't isn't it um, the census data doesn't get down to the neighborhood level, does it? It does. We looked at the census tract level, which okay. is you know three to five thousand people. Um, you could get block group level data. Um, but the quality of the data, there's a lot of uncertainty at those levels. So, so you guys, that's, is that your most granular unit is the census tract? The census tract. Right now we're trying to do a little bit more granular analysis in San Francisco. Um, but yeah, the census tract is how we decided to summarize the data. Um, so once we had a clean data, so we most a lot of it was from census um, we purchased assessor data, um, tax assessor data to get information on housing units, um, transaction data to see sales prices. We have um, vacancy data from the Postal Service. There's all sorts of different data sets that we collected. And we cleaned them and we started running um statistical models to see, you know, what are the variables that really look like they're important in terms of predicting neighborhood change. Um, so we would hold them down. In addition to that, we did a bunch of uh, uh, we did a bunch of academic literature review to see what if other people found and how are they defining gentrification specifically. Um, displacement, we, we separated it out um, in part because we didn't want to enter into the current debates about does gentrification necessarily involve displacement or not? So we've separated them. Gentrification we're looking at as mostly demographic change in a neighborhood. Um, and dis- is it demographic? Like, is it ethnic? Is it? But is, is it more just um, economic? It's mostly economic um, because so median income, right? So we looked at growth and median income as well as educational attainment, which tends to be a better um, uh, tracker of of class. Uh-huh. Um, than income, just because there's issues about the way people report their income. Um, so it just as a matter of understanding this, the gentrification, de- the definition of gentrification, one, is the changing mix of kind of undergraduate degrees or something mm-hmm. in a certain census tract. Yes. Right? Well, it, the, the definition of gentrification we're using to, to for the modeling purposes are um, it starts off as a vulnerable tract. So it starts off with a higher proportion of low-income households, um, a higher proportion of rentals. Um, there's two more, which, of course, are escaping me right now. <laughs> it's I know- very hot in the studio right now. Just so <laughs> <know>. <laughs> um, There's um, a higher proportion of people of color. Um, 
And there's one more, which of course, I, it probably is a, a higher proportion of people with less than a bachelor's degree. Yeah. Um, so, so it starts off as a vulnerable place. Um, we see demographic change, as we just discussed, and we also see investment in real estate. So we see growth in sales prices, new development. Um, you guys look at like all that. cash purchases? We do not. Yeah, that's something that you probably could get from the the assessor's office. Yeah, yeah, we do because there's a there's mortgage information on there too. Yeah. So yeah, that's a good point. So um, so that so that was kind of how we define gentrification, and we looked at displacement simply as the loss of low income households. Um, we've toyed with a bunch of different things. Um, People, a lot of people have been asking, well, but couldn't it just be that people are moving up and the income scale, which is true. Um, and we did a little bit of analysis. Unfortunately, we don't have that kind of data available um, at the household level. But what we the analysis that we did, right, it ends in 2013. So this is the period of the Great Recession. And um, when we looked at national level data, we found the opposite to be true, right? You have many more people who are going down in the income ladder rather than up. So for at least for this period, we feel like it's a decent enough proxy for displacement. Interesting. So we're talking to Dr. Miriam Zuck. She's a project director for the Urban Displacement Project coming out of the Center for Community Innovation here at Cal. You can check out the map that she built and published. Uh, was last week was when it came out? Or is it this? This Monday. This Monday out. came yeah. out the urban dis- at urbandisplacement.org. And she's been doing the rounds on different radio stations here in the Bay Area. So we're very lucky to have her here. Thanks for coming in again. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to ask about... Um, you, we were just talking about the data collection and the mm-hmm. visualization is really cool. Um, but I think one of the intents here is to not only visualize what's going on and identify places that are at risk for displacement, but to provide some kind of actionable intel to yeah. organizations. And that's really, I think, where the rubber meets the road is we know this is happening. And, you know, anybody who's been to – like I used to live um, in the Western Edition in San Francisco mm-hmm. 15 years ago. And if you go to Divisit Arrow Street now, it is like Disneyland compared yeah. to what it used to be. So this yeah. is something that's happened happening and everybody knows it. But the question is, what do you do about it? Because these are market forces and market forces we all know are very powerful. Mm-hmm. So supply and demand, if someone wants to live there and they're willing to pay more, it's hard to stop that from happening. So what do you think is the 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 actions that can be taken, and whether they be on an individual level, government level, um, what do you think is the real way to to combat displacement, or can we, or is it just inevitable? I don't think it's inevitable, and so part of the thing that we're trying to emphasize with these maps are that somebody called them the continuum of gentrification the other day, and I said, no, 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 it's not a <laughs> continuum that 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 implies some sort of inevitability. Um, there are things that we can do, and we're currently working on a policy tool that will really help community organizations and cities and people interested figure out what's what are the right tools for my place. So originally we thought that we were going to be able to say, okay, you're a place at risk. Here are the things that you need to do. But there's so much diversity in neighborhoods and cities that it didn't make sense. And we didn't want, you know, to give out some generic lists that then people can just be like, meh, this doesn't apply to me and, and yeah. move on. So we're currently in the process of developing a tool that will really try to match what the conditions are in the place with what are the appropriate policies and investment types. Um, But there's a lot that cities can do. Um, There's a lot that land or, you know, property owners can do being good, being good uh, uh, landlords. Um, You mean not raising the rents? Not or or just uh, raising the rents a moderate amount instead of 
doubling them, tripling them, um, sure. just because they can right now. Yeah. And um, Richmond, because, I believe, was the first city in 30 years or something to enact rent control. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's which a is, step. In, it like is a the step. The government can do that. It's still a struggle. You know, there's there, there's petitions out right now to try to repeal it, um, of course. Uh, sure. And so, but it shows the leadership over there um, that hopefully other cities will follow in suit. And other cities are actually saying, like cities that you wouldn't expect, um, um, places in San Mateo County are talking about rent control, which I think a lot of us thought that there was no hope for anybody enacting rent control anymore. Um, yeah. But but we see that it's happening and people are see it as a solution. So, you know, there are things that cities can do in terms of helping people stay in place as the as the neighborhood is changing. Um, things like tenant protections, rent control, just cause evictions ordinances, um, preserving affordable housing. So a lot of the affordable housing stock is at risk. The the subsidized housing stock is at risk. So. Um, you know, people are no longer accepting Section 8 vouchers because they don't have to. They can get more money if they don't. Um, so enacting policies, anti-discrimination policies could be helpful. And then there's making more affordable housing um, and kind of similar into the preservation. Um, you know, historically, most low-income households have lived in non-subsidized housing but it was affordable to them. That doesn't really exist in the Bay Area anymore. And so trying to convert some market rate housing into subsidized housing is what some cities are looking into. Um, and just generating no, new resources or being open to citing affordable housing in your communities, which is a big hurdle in a lot of communities, um, is another thing that we're looking at. And, um, are you talking about NIMBYism? Like people want it, but they don't want the affordable housing in their neighborhood. Is that what you mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge struggle. Um, you know, they'll say, oh, we don't want the density or we don't want the traffic, but really they don't want um, people that are different from them in their neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, and certainly asset building. You know, we're seeing a lot of movement, especially in minimum wage, but even the new minimum wage is that's going to be enacted, what, over a three-year period in some of these cities. Um it's still not going to meet the demand, the, the need for housing. I mean, I think you need to be making over $25 an hour to be able to afford housing. Um, so It's also highly controversial. I mean, some of the owners, like restaurants, uh, I've been noticing, is they're just getting rid of their bus staff. Yeah. Because the, they're just saying they can't afford they it. Say so they they, can't they afford meet it. the waitresses and the waiters have to do more work, basically. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's a complicated web, but, uh, you know, you've, you've been, you've done great work in helping us to understand a little bit more. I want to ask some of the last questions here and we're listening, we're talking to Dr. Miriam Zook here on Methods of the Madness on KALX Berkeley, 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Ali Nazar. Um, when you're doing research, I found one of the most illustrative, um, tasks in the research process is the quantitative or qualitative side. Mm. So we were talking about the quantitative. Can you share with us a story during the qualitative part of looking at this that really crystallized this problem for you that really made you really understand it and like redouble your efforts to try to solve it? Sure. Um, so our case studies um, were selected for a variety of different reasons. Some of them were places that have already undergone gentrification, like the mission. Some of them were places where they're anxious about it, like Marin City. Um, and some places were places where, you know, we see pockets of low income and um, households that we feel like neighborhoods are changing, but there wasn't quite enough information there. So, for instance, um, 
the Monument Corridor in Concord. Nobody really thinks of Concord as a gentrifying area. Um, and we started working with uh, Monument Impact, a community-based organization out there that's been heavily involved with the downtown revitalization efforts and trying to really protect tenants. Um, and we started doing interviews uh, with all sorts of different kinds of stakeholders. And in one of our interviews with a landlord, we heard him say um, – or he responded when we asked him his opinion about the BART stations, because it is near a BART station. There's all sorts of reasons why you might want to see it. You might see investment there. He said, you know, I don't really care about the BART station, but um, I know the laptop crowd does. So I, uh, I'm planning on evicting all of my low-income Latino households. Um, eventually, I want to convert to condos, and I want to make room for the laptop crowd to move in. And we were like... Where are we? Um, we're out in Concord, you know, and there's that speculation happening all over the place. Um, so property owners see that the demand is regional and they know that eventually we're going to run out of space um, in more of the hot market parts of the Bay Area. And they're prepping for this. And so we're starting to see change in areas that we wouldn't expect. Um, and so when we heard that story, we were like, this is a really... This is a huge issue, and we're only scratching the surface at this point. Great. Well, that's a really powerful story, and I think helps to crystallize you know, the issue here of, like I said earlier, of the supply and demand problem. You're always going to have capitalists trying to take advantage of it, and that's one of the bases that this country is built on. But yeah. to be able to mitigate that somewhat and make it have a fair playing field, I think, is the, the trick that we got to find. The Bay Area being a progressive leader in the country, hopefully we can lead the way for others to really understand this. So thanks for all your work, Dr. Zuck. Absolutely. And I, like I said before, I really encourage everybody to go to the urbandisplacement.org. That's the map where you can go and play around with all the data that she's visualized for us. And uh, you can check us out at calyx.berkeley.ed if you want to learn more about the program. This is Method to the Madness. Thanks for joining. Have a great Friday, everybody.